Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. We are starting to see more and more cases like libel cases, defamation cases, uh, tortious interference cases that come almost primarily out of the, the online arena. You know, those things before were were different. You know, I mean, every time we get a case now, that's a that's sort of a commercial dispute between companies or between companies and a former employee or involving a non-compete, all those things, almost all of them start now online or electronically Whereas before it was interviewing customers, it was it was finding out where they were getting leads, it was sales information. Now we're asking for you know online posts, Twitter histories, email accounts. You know the, just the way in which those things and the way in which business is done is more and more online, as you indicated. Welcome, listeners, to the Ms. Interpreted podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and joining me is Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey there, Kelly, and greetings to all of our listeners. And so to kick things off today, let me be the first to wish everybody a happy Social Media Day. Apparently, Social Media Day started just over 10 years ago, I think. It's when digital media site Mashable first announced that June 30th was going to be the first inaugural social media day. So that's what we're going to talk about a lot today. Of course, back then, social media was a new thing, right? Yeah, well, now it's another unofficial holiday. I don't know whether we should exchange gifts or shots of tequila. Because I have a a love-hate relationship with social media. Today, it's mostly about hate. So... (laughs) Feel the hate. Yeah, I wish I could go for a, a gift or two. But I'll tell you what, if uh, you could have any social media day gift on your little wish list, what, Kelly, would you think it needs to be? A social media day gift. Hmm. Um, a new iPhone? <laughs> <laughs> a new laptop, maybe? I know a that you've had some struggles. And a new iPhone and backups of everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is why we have an IT company, right? Yes. (laughs) Well, I know that from personal experience, you've had a few challenges with a particular social media platform. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that, because it might set the stage for some of our conversation today about some of the challenges today and things that companies as well as individuals are having to deal with. Well, sure. And We had a kind of a back and forth about whether we should talk about this because it's just like ransomware. Okay, we don't know how many ransomware attacks are actually happening because companies aren't coming out and talking about it. And so we had a situation where our Facebook ad manager got hacked and I struggled for, I don't know, about 60 seconds about should we tell people about that or will they think that we're an incompetent agency? And <laughs> But only the, 60 seconds. <laughs> only 60 seconds because the net net after all of the drama and just angst and frustration and sometimes rage at Facebook, what we came away with and, and what our clients agreed with us on is that this can happen to anyone and it is becoming more and more prevalent. And so what happened to us is Well, first of all, I still cannot believe that Facebook is as huge of a company, media company as as it is, and you can only get to Facebook ad manager through personal accounts. 
Right. So you have to be on Facebook. To, you have to yeah. be on Facebook and it is tied to our individual personal accounts. Right. Now there are some ways and we're thinking about just setting up kind of shell accounts that aren't really us that are only to place these ads. So they're not tied to all of our personal information, but that's the way it is. So one of our employees got hacked. She knew immediately that she was hacked and she was an admin on all of our accounts because she worked on all of the campaigns that we run for clients. So she immediately notified us. We, we notified all of our clients to be on the lookout. We took the, all the security measures that needed to be taken. But at first, nothing really happened. And all of a sudden, it happened. Everything happened. The hacker removed us. You know, if we were anybody who was an admin on our clients' accounts, they removed us all. And they removed the clients from their own accounts. Oh, so no one had access. Uh. And this happened, the big breach, when the hacker actually, I guess, you know, figured out how to then infiltrate one of our clients' accounts who has multiple brands and was able to get into all of their brands and charge money on their credit card and basically shut them down on Memorial Day weekend. And it's a retail company. So, you know, that was not a great time to be shut down from running ads because Memorial Day weekend, as we all know, is big sale time. And so the issue is never what the charges are on the credit card because Facebook will always take them off or you can dispute it with your, your credit card company. So, you know, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 25000 that went on the card and, and some went on our card, some went on their card. And we were able to recoup that money, but what we were not able to recoup was the opportunity loss or the opportunity cost of not being able to run ads and also to have to literally go to war with Facebook to get our admin status back. And that's where the real pain came in because this went on for three weeks. For three weeks. That is unreal. Yeah. It's just unreal that they were not more responsive and that's the part I think that that boggles my mind is that as far along and far evolved as that company is or should be, that they do not have the infrastructure, I suppose, or the procedure, the policies in place to not only perhaps be more preventative on these things in the first place, but also just to help people, help companies that find themselves in this situation for that to have drug on for three weeks is unconscionable yes. to me. Well, and the big takeaway is that they really just don't care. There's no empathy. Our vice president of client services, who it manages all of our digital and social, they cut her off of chat because she was kept chatting in so much that they just turned it off. So she couldn't <laughs> communicate anymore. And we went <laughs> And it's through. not like what they don't like have a 1-800 number that you well, can call, do they? No, they don't. You can't talk to so a So that's the person. only way you can even have. You, you, can only you can only communicate through chat or online unless you're lucky enough. Our client, because they're, they spend so much money with Facebook, they actually had a phone number of someone that they'd kind of made friends with who was trying to help us. But what we learned from it is that we were doing pretty much everything right. There were a few things that we have decided to change and that we have changed in that we are vastly limiting the number of admins that we have down right. to two or three for our entire company. And then 
everybody has two-factor authentication, but we're making it a policy now that you have to, if you're going to work in our agency and you're going to work on social media accounts. And then we had activated two-factor authentication in business manager. It's just, it's, there's, our client agreed. We all agreed. Luckily, the big client that got impacted said, you know, it's not your fault. We, this is a colossal pain in the butt. It's been terrible for business, but we're not blaming it on you. It's not your fault. So we, we went through all the due diligence. We double checked that we were following all the best practices. We updated our social media policies so we could hold our employees accountable for not only two factor, but also for changing their passwords every two weeks. Yeah. Now we're looking at some password encryption software that can manage, you know, across all of your apps, per ones that we use for personally and business. But the mere lack of security by having to have your personal Facebook account tied to ad manager is something that I don't understand from a company that this large. Well, it's a power thing, obviously. And I mean, as as painful as that story is, I have to say that it's not surprising, particularly in light of some of the conversation we had with Dr. Candace White from the University of Tennessee's public relations program in the College of Communication and Information. She was on the show with us back last November. Kelly, you, as I know you recall, we had such a insightful conversation with her, her academic research on social media's lack of regulation and just this continued Wild West situation that we're dealing with, with social media companies and for firms like ours that are in the marketing space and trying to utilize these tools. You know, she shared some concerns with us that were both pretty fascinating as well as very scary regarding no regulation, little accountability. So I'm going to have Chris Hill, our Sound engineer here, roll a clip from Candace's comments on that episode. Chris, if you can just go to that clip. That was kind of the thrust of my paper is that when we've thought about social media ethics in the past, we've thought about the public relations professional, the organization is what I'm writing on social media, true, transparent in the public interest. And that's been the only thing we've considered. And Mary Beth, just like you were talking about the PRSA agreement, what we haven't done as public relations professionals is looked at the company itself. And I will just say, I said in the paper and I'll say here, that the corporate social responsibility of Facebook is dismal. They are not acting in the public interest. I know we've all heard that on social media, you're not the customer, you're the product, you're what's being sold. Yes. And I think as public relations professionals, we just need to look deeper into this business model and how our own customers are being treated. And there's also implications for how we're using social media. When we look at the business end of it, if you look at your Facebook page for the organization, the client you're representing, that's what you see. But what do users see? Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that we can't see. And so what we do know is that algorithms are determining that. So you may be thinking you're reaching the people you need to be reaching, but you're not because every single person has more friends who are creating more content than any other person can see in a day. And so Facebook algorithms determine what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And you also run the risk of your client or your organization, your message being surrounded by messages that you wouldn't want to be surrounded with, that you would not choose. 
So that interview was a pretty serious wake up call for for me. And then six months later, you know, we're dealing with a complete nightmare situation, right? Yes. Being at the mercy of an unregulated service provider is bad for business. And all we can really do at this point, you know, security is not a sexy topic, but it's a vital (laughs) part of any business. Exactly. It's the way of the world. At least it is right now. And we all know that regulation could be coming to some extent to social media companies in the future. But apart from that, there are other rules, I think, that companies and organizational users of social media themselves have to follow in using social media. And that's something that I've learned a good bit about from the guest that's coming up today. So including when it comes to managing workforces and employees. And that's why I'm so excited to have our guest today to learn more about these rules of the social media road. We are proud to welcome Chris McCarty, a shareholder in the law firm of Lewis Thomason's Knoxville, Tennessee office. Chris is a lovely person, and he's also a very highly in-demand speaker on the topics of employment law and social media regulations in the workplace. So we're hoping we can learn a lot from him today. Yeah, I've known Chris for some years now. I've really been a big fan of his work. Several years ago when I was in Leadership Knoxville, I think that was the time when I first heard his fantastic presentation that he gives about the implications of social media use in employment or employer settings, the workplace settings. It was really compelling then. I'm sure his insights today will be even more so now. So, Chris, welcome to Misinterpreted. Hey, thanks. Appreciate you guys having me. And thanks for the kind words. Oh, yes. Well, you can pay us later. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks in the mail. Yeah. (laughs) To kick off the conversation, though, Chris, I'd love to hear more about your work at Lewis Thomason and how your career path has evolved. You don't exactly think about attorneys going into the space of social media and social media law and security. And so what was your career path? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I started out, actually, I was a school teacher for a few years before I went to law school, taught eighth grade history. I always liked the joke that I saw the face of the devil and he or she was a 14 year old. We can relate. I did enjoy it at times, but uh, I got out of that, and decided to go to law school. And then I really took up an interest when I started my firm at that time was called Lewis King. A lot like banks, law firm names change. And so now we're Lewis Thomason. We've merged since then. And uh, I've been working at the same firm since I was a clerk. Took a great interest in a mentor of mine, her practice, Janet Hayes, practices employment law. Started working with her. And then I also started doing a lot of education law. And I represent now um, over a dozen public school systems in Tennessee. You represent a lot of private employers, regional and national as well. And you know, I think the more you do those two types of work, the more you just have to learn social media. You have to learn the implications of it. You know, I tell people I deal with a social media related issue. It's no longer every month. It's sometimes daily. Right. Yeah. You just learn it that way and you you have to become an expert if you're going to do your job well. Right. Well, full disclosure for me, I've worked directly with Chris and advocating for important issues uh, tied specifically to the importance of legal and financial compliance in the PR industry. So, Chris, I just want to thank you for your work there that you've done in that arena. And I'd like to ask something to kick off on my part here, something of a macro question in honor of Social Media Day 2021, I guess. And that's, Chris, what is your own big picture view about where social media use is going? And if you had to pick maybe 
two or three of the most pressing legal or regulatory concerns you see unfolding out there writ large, what would they be? Yeah, I would sort of divide those into three big picture topics. I would say one, and and we can talk about this more, and I'm sure we will today. What do we mean by free speech? I know we could go back to, you know, James Madison writing the Bill of Rights all the way back in 1787 and, and working on it. He did not have Facebook in mind when he did that. So I think we're all trying to guarantee he did. We're all trying to figure that out. You know, what does it mean in the social media age? What are the boundaries? When does it stop? That's just something that we're all still grappling with as a society. And I can even throw this in. I mean, just recently, the Supreme Court in the United States has kind of weighed in again with social media and student usage. Uh, I saw that about the high school student. Yeah, the Mahoney case, the, the one that we've been waiting for in this arena for a while. And I think we're going to be dealing with with that case and the ramifications of it for decades. So, so I mean, it's it's something that everybody's grappling with. Another thing I would say is, you know, who owns your online self is a big one. Uh, we see this a lot with entertainment. We see this a lot in local news or national news. We see this a lot in, in y'all's industry as well, obviously. You know, you encourage your people, I'm sure, to post on social media, to promote clients, things like that. So if they leave or if somebody goes into a different place, who owns that material? Who owns that account? Those things are always getting debated. And then lastly, what I would say about it is, and I don't know how another way to describe this, but do we really care as a society about the online mob? And by that, I mean, you know, you read all these BuzzFeed articles that say, well, Twitter says this and Twitter says that. And I think we're, we're growing with this sentiment now of, well, who exactly are these people on Twitter and should they be the ones pushing the needle? Uh, and I think that is something that, you know, just because there's a lot of them doesn't mean that they're the majority, I guess, is the way I'm getting at. And so how we tackle that from a policy perspective, from a regulatory perspective, these are things that I think people are having a hard time figuring out. Well, and, and the one that gets me is when somebody tells you uh, an interesting fact or something that seems totally outrageous and you're like, oh, where did you get that? And, and yeah. they say Twitter. And I'm like, well, okay, well, when did Twitter become the end all be all of information, accurate information? And I think that's what is trickling down into, you know, this is a business to business podcast, but it's trickling down into what happens in the business space as well as the personal space. So, Chris, you, as you may know, our podcast is called Misinterpreted because we make it our business to uncover misconceptions and stereotypes and inaccurate perceptions and help our listeners understand PR and communications issues better. So if you could pinpoint something about how social media is persistently misunderstood or legally mishandled in some way, either by consumers or in general, or by a lot of employers, you know, what would it be? What, what, what's the, What's the myth that we need to dispel? So I'm, I'm going to say today probably too many times, like lawyers do with disclaimers, that there are no you know easy answers. And I'm going to give two roundabout things. But on this one, I'll give you an easy answer, and that's free speech. So, so free speech and the concept of free speech, especially in the employment sector, is so misunderstood that it's just it's something I deal with, again, all the time. And, and the bottom line of it is, you know, I mean, Again, I'll, I'll throw Madison's name out and Jefferson as his mentor. And we can talk about that stuff as an old social studies teacher all day. And I, and I love those people. But they the First Amendment of the Constitution is about making sure that we as citizens are not prohibited from having freedom of speech by the government. It has nothing to do with private companies. 
I mean, and I can't say that enough. Right. It has nothing to do with private companies. So if my if I'm a stockbroker for Morgan Stanley and they and I don't I'm, I'm not speaking for them, I just pulled a name out of the hat. Um, and I want to and my company wants to have rules that say that I can't talk on social media about politics and I can't use profane language and I can't do this or that. They can do that. And by me taking that job voluntarily, I've agreed to those rules. Um, I can't get arrested for that speech. I can't, you know, get punished by the IRS for that speech. But that's the government. I mean, my, my private employer, the First Amendment has zero application. So you can go out there and say whatever you want to, but you might get fired. Yeah. I mean, it's just the I call it the big boy rule. Yeah, you can you can do what you want. but There's repercussions in life. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's a great point and so germane to the public relations industry because we are founded on free speech as well and the ability to communicate on behalf of our clients, communicate on behalf of just a wide variety of different issues, sometimes controversial. And you know, free speech is a very big issue that we as a nation need to be addressing just in our, I think, our discourse in a much more robust way. And there's this constant level of friction though, when we talk about whether it's free speech or some of these other issues between the need for regulation and compliance. And then on the other hand, Americans' expectation that social media provides for freedom of speech. So what do you think about social media platforms' efforts to self-police their platforms? I mean, do you feel like that, Chris, there's too much self-imposed censorship that social media companies are inflicting on their users and do the platforms themselves overstep on that? Yeah. I mean, I'll be the first to say there's no good answer on that one because right. I think, I think the problem that we're running into now is there used to be, I don't want to say universal truths, but there were certain things that we as a society agreed upon were okay to say and, and sort of, you know, the concept in America that, you know, I could walk, I'm, I'll tell you a story. I remember my dad that we lived next door to a farmer. I grew up in Sevier County when it used to be more farms. And we lived next door to a farmer who was what I would call an old D Democrat. And literally my dad, like a storybook, would go to the fence sometimes and they would just argue. They would not <laughs> yell at each other. They would just argue about politics, literally with a barbed wire fence at their waists, you know, and just. <laughs> and thank just, goodness was, for the barbed wire fence, right? <laughs> yeah, Mr. Haley. And they were, they were good friends and yeah, yeah. they loved each other and they totally disagreed on politics. And there was never a time when I heard my dad ever say, well, he shouldn't be able to think that or do this or, you know, vice versa. And I think what Facebook and these social media companies are dealing with now is there are a lot of people that really don't want to hear the other side. And as long as that is the case, I don't know how you come up with a real framework that will work because we all agree, I think, on what hate speech is, or at least we used to. And you can you should and certainly I think have to regulate that and ban that from your site because you don't want somebody getting threatened with harm. But now the, the line that I used to think was pretty clear with hate speech is so different person to person that I think that's what you're seeing Facebook and Twitter and everybody struggle with is, is really how do you do it? How do you draw the line without making someone or everyone mad? Yeah. And to our listeners, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to the episode with Dr. Candace White because she talks about, we talk about cancel culture and surveillance capitalism and about how social media outlets serve you up what you want to see because it's all about reducing cognitive dissonance. And so your point of view is always validated, always validated. There is no 
your dad and his friend across the barbed wire fence anymore having a discussion because we live on social media and we're just we're constantly validated with more information that supports what we believe or think we believe. So this Pew Research study just came out in April of this year with social media use data for 2021. And we know YouTube is growing in popularity, wildly growing in popularity. And Facebook's growth has really leveled out. It remains a clearly dominant platform with 69% of U.S. adults reporting having used it. And seven in 10 Facebook users say they visit the site every day. And that is really sobering to me, the power of that statistic. And there's a moral dilemma, I think, going on in the business world, which is we don't like what Facebook is doing. We don't like having to play by their rules and lack of rules and all the ambiguity that there is with Facebook. But we have to be there and our clients have to be there. And it's just it's maddening. So, Chris, what are your thoughts about the power that a YouTube or Facebook wields in our society today? And do you see the legal issues only continuing to grow? Yeah, I do. I mean, so I'll answer the second question first, which is the legal issues. We are starting to see more and more cases like libel cases, defamation cases, uh, tortious interference cases that come almost primarily out of the, the online arena. You know, those things before were were different. You know, I mean, every time we get a case now, that's a that's sort of a commercial dispute between companies or between companies and a former employee or involving a non-compete, all those things. Almost all of them start now online or electronically Whereas before it was interviewing customers, it was it was finding out where they were getting leads. It was sales information. Now we're asking for, you know, online posts, Twitter histories, email accounts, you know, the, just the way in which those things and the way in which business is done is more and more online, as you indicated. So with that, litigation is going to go that way, too. And we've been slowly starting to see that happen. And it's sort of funny seeing lawyers like me have to make sure we know what things like metadata mean. Right. Uh, as we're trying to, you know, litigate our cases because it's been an educational experience. I will say this, though, an interesting thing. This, and again, this is probably a non-law answer that I've started to notice is just the growing sentiment that I think certain thought leaders are having of. And I mentioned this earlier, you know, do we really care about some of these online mobs? You know, are they really the thought leaders? And maybe what I see us as a society doing is saying, Maybe they're not the thought leaders. Maybe these are the people that were the angry people at the mall that would scream over a poster board and you would ignore them as you were walking. Maybe we shouldn't be paying attention to them online either. So I think that's the sort of the struggle we're all having is, you know, it's not hard to find a million people on Twitter that agree. Um, That doesn't mean they're the million people you want to listen to. No, I mean, I, I think discernment is more important than ever. And just being a parent. And raising your children to have that discernment when it comes to social media and consuming information and just being plain nice on social media and not using it as a place for digital warfare. I mean, this all is going to come back to how we parent and raise our kids to utilize social media as a good thing and not a place to incite violence or uh, share spread misinformation or just bully people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Well, and um, and with no expectation, Chris, that you name names or reveal clients, what would you say the biggest employer-related social media legal case or issue is that you've encountered in your practice? 
And I guess the larger question there is, what is the biggest risk arena for employers? So I will say this, I, like you indicated, you know how lawyers are, we're real weird, and I'll use the word weird, about you know naming cases or clients or things like that. But I will say, I've certainly had my share of litigation. I've got an ongoing federal lawsuit right now that involves sort of, without going too far into it, it involves the boundaries of free speech rights and social media activity and what I'm going to call professionalism in the public sector employment uh, world. And, and I'll start there. I mean, I think that's probably the thing that I deal with the most is that concept of what is a professional boundary? And I really have to put on two different hats. You know, when I'm representing school systems, they have to be more careful when we talk about what we can regulate in terms of employees off campus and on campus, because those employees work for the government. And we've got cases throughout our history as a country where it says, you know, basically, just because you work for the government doesn't mean the government gets to evaporate or get rid of your free speech rights. So, you know, those public sector employees do have more free speech rights. They do have more ability to say things online, maybe that a private sector employee doesn't. And I think we see that interplay a lot uh, in the private sector because maybe you got somebody whose husband is a teacher and they're like, well, wait a minute, my husband can comment on politics all he wants and do this and do that. And I have to just explain to them over and over again through the employer Private sector and public sector are, are apples and oranges. They're Mars and Venus. They are just so separate because I don't care if it's a local government, state government, federal government, the First Amendment prohibits the government from regulating your speech. Um, and then the question becomes, like I said, what is that professional boundary? You know, I, I always like to say the Walmart rule. That's something I utilize. And maybe you've heard that before, Mary Beth, that, you know, I think it's not uncommon or I don't think it's crazy for an employer to say that they expect an employee to behave appropriately online in that world the same way they would in the public arena, like in Walmart. If you're going, if you're walking through Walmart and you're so drunk on the weekend in your community that you fall through the bush light stand, uh, the end cap, that's probably embarrassing to you and your employer since everybody knows who you are in the service industry. Same that's thing. If, you're, if you post a video and I expect you to be the face of my company, in a region and you post a video where clients are your friends on Facebook and you're knocked down drunk every single weekend, you're probably hurting my business. So yeah. the moment you start doing that, you make it my business. And I think employees struggle with that and employers struggle with it too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always shocked at some of the posts I see from time to time from teachers. I'm, I'm just thinking, what are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. and I come from a family of educators. so. Sure. But Chris, if you could compare your own attitude about employers, employees, and social media use back 10 years ago when Social sure. Media Day first started compared to where we are now in 2021, how would you say your attitudes have evolved? The same as my clients. I think we've all gotten a little bit more tolerant. I mean, and that's sort of the bottom line of it. I'll, I'll make an analogy here. I was joking about this the other day. When I first started, and you know, one of the things we do as employment lawyers is we always touch up handbooks or help you with policies, et cetera. I can't tell you the number of clients 10, 15 years ago that always wanted us to draw up tattoo policies. I'm going to call <laughs> it personal appearance policies, right? Yeah. And you guys yeah. know what I mean. Yes. It was no tattoos. Absolutely not. We won't hire anybody with tattoos. Well, guess what? Good luck hiring somebody now under 35 without a tattoo. That's right. It's just not going to happen. So all those companies for business and market reasons and also just societal reasons have had to get more tolerant. 
all those bosses have had to get more tolerant. And same thing with social media. I mean, if you expect your under 40 and especially under 30 employees to act the same way that you would online, that's just not reasonable. That They don't look at it the same way you do. Their generation doesn't. So we've had to be a little more tolerant about the type of activity that's professional, the type of things that we're okay with. Because if you don't do that, you're just not going to have good employees or any employees, quite frankly. So tolerance is the way I would summarize it. And modeling behavior, too. I mean, as an employer, we have to model behavior and talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, you know, sometimes I think we just think younger professionals have thought through everything. And sometimes they just need some real life examples to, you know, rein them back in and say, hey, look, one time I did this and it did not turn out well because employees react to stories. I try to use storytelling in training and mentoring. Well, when we talk about liability and risk, what is a big liability risk that companies, I guess on the client side, organizations to face with a social media misstep? And I realize there's likely too many uh, to mention in one conversation, but is there one big liability risk, Chris, that jumps out to you as perhaps being the most prominent? Yeah, a lot of companies don't really understand that an invasion of privacy both is, both is what we call a common law claim, which means that the courts recognize it rather than statutes, or even a statutory concept. A lot of states now and a lot of courts have basically said that if employers go too far in how they sort of dig into their employees, and probably more where we see this the most is where they dig into applicants. If you go too far there and you overstep your bounds, you can be legally liable. One thing I have to remind people about is, you know, in Tennessee, for example, we have a law that's been on the books now for I'm going to this is I'm bad about I mean, it's it's well over three years, maybe five years that our state, like many states in the country, has basically said that employers don't have the right to sort of mandate that you give them the keys to your social media castle when you're interviewing. So if an employer if you were to go to an interview in Tennessee an employer said, OK, show me your social media activity and friend me so I can look at it. That's illegal. If an employer said, um, you know, go ahead and log on to your Facebook and hand me your computer and just let me scroll through it. I want to see what you're like on there. That's illegal. So, you know, those type of things we do recognize now that people are allowed in their private lives to say, OK, I'm going to set some boundaries and I'm, you know, I'm not expecting everybody in the world to see this. And if I limit it, that should also mean I can limit my employer from seeing it. Um, And I think employers struggle with that because I get it. You're hiring somebody. Maybe you're hiring somebody to be a stockbroker and you're going to bring them in. You know, they're going to make over 100K a year. Again, you're putting them in front of clients. You probably do want to know what they're doing on Friday nights, but too bad. You don't necessarily get to know that. Yeah. Well, on our podcast, once again, with Dr. Candace White, one of her concerns is that Facebook selling data to large employers with social media profiles that are able to predict whether someone has a propensity for substance abuse or whether they're bipolar or all these things. And so one of the points she made is that, you know, she's convinced that eventually we're going to create this underemployable group of people because once again, it comes back to Facebook and, and everything they know about you, psychographic, psychographically and in many other ways. And if that data gets sold, which we give you permission to do when you just click next, 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 next on social media, 
you don't know what long-term ramifications it could have to your employment. Mm-hmm. Is that a thought process that you all are thinking about long-term? Yeah. And I've, I've counseled a lot of companies against that. I mean, not against, I'm, I'm not, you know, most companies can't afford sort of that big deep dive and, you know, analytics concept, but I, don't, don't be wrong. I mean, do I think Goldman Sachs or other companies that are that large might go down that road someday? Again, I'm just pulling companies out of the air. Yeah. Um, maybe. But what I tell people is, you know, there's a Pandora's box effect to getting too much information because at the end of the day, I mean, the civil rights act has been involved in place since 1964, you're not allowed. And it's, we got all kinds of precedent that says that you're not allowed to make decisions on hiring or employment status based on somebody's marital status, based on somebody's gender, based on somebody's sexual orientation. And under the ADA, you know, somebody's health conditions should not be something you're thinking about. I mean, I tell employers all the time, if you go online and you you look at that applicant and you only have three left and you find out that one of them has, let's say cystic fibrosis, and, you know, that's going to affect your risk pool on your benefits margin. And you decide, oh, man, I'm not going to hire that person. Well, that's technically an ADA violation. I mean, you've just made a decision that they're not hireable based on their health, not because they couldn't do the job, not because they're not qualified, but because they have a disability. And the more information like that, you know, and you're making decisions upon, the more you increase your liability. So, Chris, as we wrap up, coming out of the pandemic, people have leaned so heavily on social media as a lifeline in many cases and as a connection point to with others, staying connected when we felt so isolated. And we're familiar with the adage of do no harm. And of course, Google's famous moniker of don't be evil. So much for that. So here's the question. <laughs> On this side of the pandemic, as we're coming out of the pandemic, what are some ways that companies and organizations can keep their legal risks in check with their social media strategies but not throw the baby out with the bathwater and be too restrictive and and lose that human factor? And should legal counsel be there at the table to help advise social media policies more consistently? Yeah, you're, you're going to be surprised, I think, by my answer here because it's coming from a lawyer. But I, I generally tell my clients to lighten up. I mean, I think a lot of people now, especially younger people, get that social media is not always something you take seriously. Not everything that a company tweets is its official statement on life and love and liberty. I mean, sometimes it can just be fun. Uh, you know, I think of accounts that I like on Twitter, like Wendy's, like Moon Pie. People are in on the joke. I mean, they understand that they're just playing around a little bit and you don't always have to be uptight in official statements. And I don't think every time that these irreverent, you know, social media platforms post something online that they're running it by legal. I hope they're not because it's, it's more entertaining than it would be if a lawyer wrote it. So, you know, yeah, you have to have general guidelines. Yeah, you have to probably have things that are no-nos and things that for sure you need to avoid for liability purposes. But for the most part, again, and and it really comes into play more here that there's an advantage that if you set your social media up to be just more fun and sometimes to be satirical, then there are protections under the law for you to have more fun with it. You know, I mean, the reason Saturday Night Live and you know, going way back, Mad Magazine can make those jokes is because we allow for satirical depictions and there are exceptions for, you know, laws like libel laws and defamation laws and intellectual property laws. And so the more serious you are sometimes, the more legal liability you have is, is a sort of a weird thing in our laws that people have to remember. And the other thing I would say, and just when you're thinking through social media as a company, one thing that I say to clients a lot is, you know, make sure you're getting 
generational info from more than just the generation at the top. You know, a lot of the people that own the company still, a lot of people that run the companies are not 30, are not 25. But when you're setting up those, you know, those policies and those guidelines, get input from younger people. You have to, because that's the people. I mean, it's crazy to me that companies would set up social media policies that generally a lot of the people accessing their social media are younger and they don't get input internally from in, from those same generations. I think that's key. That's a very good point. And we've loved having you on the show, Chris. I came within about three hours of calling you to hire you on this Facebook hacker thing we had because <laughs> they were crippling our ability to do business. And I was like, maybe I'll call Chris McCarty and he can write a letter and they'll talk to us. But then all of a sudden it happened. So maybe I, I put that juju out there and have to call you, but you well, never I'm, know when we'll have to. <laughs> I'm always glad to help. I'm happy to be here. I always say though, that nobody ever wants to talk to me and it's only awkward when my wife says that. So it's not offensive. <laughs> awesome. Well, to our listeners, thank you for supporting the misinterpreted podcast by Fletcher marketing PR. You can connect with Chris McCarty on LinkedIn and follow his law firm on Twitter at Lewis Thomas and TN. And listeners, please follow us at Twitter handle Fletcher PR. You can also follow Kelly at Twitter handle KD Fletcher and me at Mary Beth West. And of course, happy social media day. <laughs> or not. A special thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Hill with Knoxville-based HumblePod. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.